Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I am at KUOW's Election Center headquarters. That's what I'm calling this room today. Uh, We're about to break down the latest primary election count and get to the other big news of the week with today's panelists. Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama. Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Publicola editor and co-host of the Seattle Nice podcast, Erica Barnett. Welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. And Everett Herald reporter Isabella Breda. Isabella, thanks for coming on. Hey, happy to be here. And we are streaming this program um, some of us are visual learners, you know, so so you can you can watch us do the show if you're on uh, YouTube or Facebook, and uh, we'll be glad to have you along. Let us begin with this week's election, where they're continuing to count the ballots, and that has shifted things a little. Erica, I think the biggest development since Tuesday are that we now know who the November opponents will be in the 8th Congressional District, and which has been our swing district. And also the tightening congressional primary in southwest Washington. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's going to be uh, I mean, things are looking very good for Kim Schreier um, in the uh, in the eighth uh, where that has been a swing district. Historically, uh, Reagan Dunn um, has uh, been, uh, you know, effectively he's he was the kind of moderate candidate uh, from King County has been effectively uh, booted in the eighth uh, by Matt Larkin for the um, uh, the GOP uh, side of the equation. And then um, in Jamie Herrera Butler's district, um, incumbent, very conservative uh, Republican is uh, in danger of being ousted from the primary and not going forward to the general by a, uh, a Trump, a Trumpy Republican uh, named Joe Kent. So, uh, so the ballots are, as we're recording this on Friday, um, still out uh, on on that, and it kind of remains to be seen whether it's going to be um, a Trump candidate versus uh, Democrat Marie uh, Perez. Um, so, uh, very very interesting races uh, outside of Seattle there. Yeah, um, starting with the first election you mentioned, Matt Larkin instead of Reagan Dunn will be the Republican contender for the eighth. And what's the most important difference between Matt Larkin and Reagan Dunn? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Matt Larkin is, I mean, Reagan Dunn is a, is a fairly moderate Republican, although he ran to the right um, in an effort to, uh, to really uh, try to win some of those more Trumpy voters. Um, He is a, uh, Larkin is, um, you know, he ran on a, a theme of make crime illegal again. He's staunchly um, anti-choice. Um, he said that he, I believe he told David Hyde, um, KUOW reporter, that uh, he would not be against a national ban on abortion. Um, so he's very, very far to the right uh, for, for that district and uh, far to the right of Reagan Dunn, his fellow Republican. Okay. Anything to add from Elise or Isabella when it comes to this 8th Congressional District, which is, by the way, just some people don't memorize this map by number. I just want to remind everybody that this is the district that crosses the Cascades. It's eastern King and Pierce counties, but then all the way across to Ellensburg and, and Wenatchee and Leavenworth. Anything to add? 
I mean, a conversation that, you know, a lot of people were having was this could be signaling whether or not there would be a red wave in November, Mm -hmm. um, because now it is including those uh, rural parts of Kittitas County and and East. Um, But I think it was interesting to see those low turnout numbers in general and and only about on election night, there was about 15 percent for both uh, Larkin and Dunn. Um, And that was all messed up here in Snohomish County where the ballot tallies didn't go over to the Secretary of State correctly initially. So initially we saw 15% for Dunn and maybe 15.3 for Larkin, then it was 15.9. And it kept shifting around. So what was already an unclear of who could be possibly number two was incredibly unclear here. Um, But that was something that the, the county auditor's office was able to clear up quickly. Not a screaming case of election fraud in Snohomish County. Nope, Just a blurp, not even close. a blurp. That's <laughs> sort of like a blip. Elise, what was your? Uh, I was curious, Isabella. Yeah. Was your? Oh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I, I was curious, Isabella. Just before you you move on from that, how have you felt your communities responded to that so far this week? I think the people that stressed out the most may have been those of us who were in the newsroom on election night. Uh, no one seems to yeah. really have paid attention. I was kind of <laughs> monitoring Sutherland's Facebook to see if there was any mention of it, um, because that's the person who uh, over in the 39th that I thought may have commented on it. But uh, no, it's been pretty quiet. It was just stressful for a handful of us. Erica, in, in southwest Washington, we mentioned the third congressional district. That is... As you said, Jamie Herrera Butler, who voted to impeach Trump. Do we have any indications of what a Joe Kent, if Joe Kent overtakes her and and would go against the Democrat, who's Marie Perez, um, what Joe Kent, um, what what that election might be like? Yeah. Do we have what would that happen? It'll it'll present a pretty clear choice. You know, I I think that, you know, it, it. Marie, uh, Marie Perez is currently polling at about, I think, 31% or so. So it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not exactly uh, a super swingy district, but um, I think, you know, presented with those very stark options of, you know, a kind of moderate Democrat and a Trump Republican, you know, I'm not sure that uh, a district that has voted for Jamie Herrera Butler is ready to go full MAGA. Um, I think on, on some issues, uh, you know, they may very strongly disagree with, uh, with Joe Kent, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm by no means an expert on, on that particular district. I just am am kind of looking at the, at the results and, um, and and looking at, you know, Jamie Herrera Butler, who really sort of positioned herself as being, I think more moderate than she really is in order to uh, portray Kent as kind of uh, kind of a Lulu. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, will that district go for go for a far right Trumpy um, conspiracy theorist type? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I believe that Marie Perez's uh, campaign is, you know, is is arguing that they, that they definitely won't. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. Maybe somebody else is, is more familiar with that district. Well, no, you said it all, Erica. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. What about <laughs> a bunch of west of the mountains people? Over yes, here. <laughs> right, and and uh, yeah, and and northwest of uh, Jamie Herrera Butler. So, um, Isabella and and Elise, anything to add about the state legislature? There was some discussion: Will the red wave reach there? Will Will Democrats lose any majorities? I don't I don't see that happening so far. 
Um, yeah, well, as you said, it looks like there are still some races that are up in the air. But um, but yeah, the red wave term is interesting. I mean, I think that we what we've seen is that a lot of the Democratic candidates have, you know, come out in front so far. Um, I think we're still waiting on the 47th district, which is pretty swingy. Um, but one of those crucial seats is, is vacant right now. And so we're, I think, Right now, it's we're looking at to see if uh, Claudia Kaufman is going to overtake the other Democratic candidate um, and face Republican in the fall, but that's that still remains to be seen too. Okay, uh, before we leave um, state elections, what about the person who's going to oversee our elections? We voted for Secretary of State this week, and Erica, you uh, you sent me a note about that with an exclamation mark. <laughs> well, the exclamation mark was sort of uh, was referring to the margin by which um, Steve Hobbs, the incumbent, uh, who's Democrat, is is leading his uh, his next opponent, uh, Julie Anderson, who ran as a member of the nonpartisan party. Uh, you have to declare a party on uh, our ballots. So she just said nonpartisan. Um, Isn't that and, weird, by the way, that you have to call yourself in a nonpartisan party? <laughs> I mean, the, the the wild thing in our races is you can call yourself anything. I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> all kinds of you know people di- naming themselves as members of parties that don't exist. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, I mean, it's the first time if we elect Steve Hobbs in, uh, in November, it'll be the first time uh, the state has elected Democrats since the 60s to this position. It's traditionally uh, been, you know, the one race where uh, I think, Democrats cross party lines and have voted for Republicans like um, Hobbs's predecessor, Kim Wyman. And, you know, Julie Anderson, um, the Pierce County auditor who's coming in second right now, really ran as, you know, I mean, her campaign was based on this idea that this should be a nonpartisan position, um, which, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people would agree, but it is not a nonpartisan position. And I think when you are looking at your ballot and you see nonpartisan party, you kind of, I mean, I personally looking at my ballot think mm, this person is probably a Republican. And because um, <laughs> they, you know, yeah, because you don't want to necessarily say that in Washington if you, if you can get away with it. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and maybe that's not fair, but, you know, people don't necessarily pay the most uh, attention to uh, these kind of obscure, more obscure races. Um, and, uh, and so I think that probably hurt her. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so my exclamation point was just, you know, wow, Steve Hobbs, like, really, really came out much further ahead than I expected. Yeah. On Tuesday night, the primary night, some Democrats showed up outside the Republicans' election night party and warned that Senator Patty Murray's Republican opponent, Tiffany Smiley, would be a vote for abortion restrictions. And KUOW reporter Amy Radel talked with one of the demonstrators there, Bellevue High School student Gene Yu. The future is absolutely terrifying for me. So we are asking that you stand up for reproductive health care access and to vote quote choice and for Senator Murray. For their part, Republican candidates and speakers didn't mention the issue of abortion rights from the podium on primary night. Republican Party Chair Caleb Heimlich says candidates will be focused on voters' concerns around inflation and public safety. Erica, we saw the power of the abortion issue in Kansas this week. Voters came out in support of abortion rights. But Kansas is a red state. How big an election issue is abortion in blue Washington? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a big issue if Democrats make it a big issue. I think that, you know, when you're looking at issues that show up first and second on people's, uh, you know, on polls, um, there are often things like inflation and crime. But I think there's a lot more passion right now around uh, abortion as an issue. 
And, you know, and so I think if, if Democrats really run on this and run on, you know, the fact that, I mean, even people who are would not label themselves necessarily pro-choice do not want, um, you know, absolute total restrictions on abortion, like, you know, what uh, Matt Larkin was saying that he supported. Um, and so I think if uh, if Democrats, you know, run on the fact that uh, on some of the, the stuff that's already happening already um, with, you know, 10 year olds being forced uh, potentially to go to, to to carry pregnancies to term with women dying of ectopic pregnancies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think it can be a really powerful issue um, because I think that the middle ground on abortion is really, really wide um, and, uh, you know, and, and includes a lot of Republicans who don't believe in absolute bans. Healthcare reporter Elise Takahama, anything to add on that? Well, uh, yeah, just on your point about, you know, how is this going to affect Washington? I think I think Washington, because abortion remains legal here, there are a lot of options for people to, well, there are a lot of possibilities for people to come out here. Um, and, you know, we've already heard from abortion providers that they're getting a ton of requests from people in Idaho, especially in the eastern Washington side where they're right on the border there. And then even people coming from southern U.S., from Texas, um, they're already getting a lot of requests for people to, or for those those providers over here to help organize that. And we have some nonprofits out here that fund abortions from out of state if they're in the region. Um, and they've also been getting similar requests. So I think anything, you know, we saw that there's the Justice Department is filing this lawsuit as well against, um, again, in Idaho and challenging their abortion laws, which are, you know, restricting a lot of access. And so that at, could at also... Least would, would you explain that? What's the nature of the, of the complaint, the, the Biden administration complaint over over specifically the Idaho abortion law. Yeah, so it looks like it's it's challenging um, basically the this law that would restrict that would ban all abortions, mm-hmm. um, and they're hoping that you know that'll at least be we're, we're hearing from doctors over there too, and they're hoping that that's going to be a step to at least push off some of these trigger laws that might go into place later this month. Um, there's already some ongoing lawsuits within the Idaho Supreme Court that are addressing that too. So we're we're still kind of waiting to see how those end up. Isabella. Uh- you're in Snohomish County, where I saw that Swedish decided not to move its maternity center to Providence after all. Swedish is owned by Providence, which is a Catholic-run company. And I didn't know how much that has to do with the ab- abortion issue when you're talking about a Catholic hospital. What what happened there? Would you explain that? Yeah, so it became an issue of uh, the abortion issue because it is a faith-based hospital because they don't perform some procedures um, specifically doctors named you know abortions and sterilizations is two of those they were concerned about um, losing um, but but the reason this is specifically interesting is because in 2012 the two hospitals uh, Swedish and Providence merged but they pledged to maintain Swedish as a secular hospital and Providence would continue as a faith-based hospital that would mean that some services that would be available at Swedish would remain there mm-hmm. Um But the issue with this was, you know, Swedish officials came forward and said what we've been hearing from hospitals all over is that we're short staffed. We cannot sustain ourselves financially if we continue operating at this rate, um, relying on travel nurses to kind of fill gaps. Um, And, you know, they came forward before the public health board in South Snohomish County and, you know, shared these things. 
Um, but doctors were saying that's not exactly what they were seeing. Um, and they were more worried of issues of equity and that it's up to the hospital to, you know, maintain those uh, procedures wherever they can, however they can, because they would just ultimately go away if they moved up to Everett. And they named many other issues beyond just um, abortion or reproductive treatment access. Um, I mean, they're clients who don't own cars, don't have money for a bus ticket or an Uber ride up north. I mean, it's about 30 minutes, um, however traffic is. But there's women who, you know, are planning and people who can get pregnant who are planning to deliver in Edmonds, and that completely would have thrown and upended their plans. And so it just caused a lot of anxiety, but only for for a few days. Well, I would think that exact anxiety, all the reasons you're saying, makes sense. It sounds predictable. So why did Swedish change its mind or say it suddenly changed its mind? Um, there wasn't a lot of explanation on uh, you know, we heard our doctors and our patients, um, and mm-hmm. we're not going to move forward with this. We're going to look at alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then the question is, you know, why didn't they examine alternatives before bringing this to the public health board and, and stirring all this anxiety? Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors shared that they only had, you know, a few hours between when they were told they'd be in a meeting um, and when they sat in a meeting and were told they could be at a different hospital for up to oh, a year. Yes. Um, so there just wasn't much uh, transparency around any of the decision making. Okay. Anything before we take a break, anything to add about the state of abortion rights and its politics or the primary election in general? We've I mean, I think yes, uh, as many have already said, but I've been having connectivity issues, full transparency, uh-huh. um, <laughs> is that, you know, a lot of uh, Dems ran on the issue of, uh, you know, a state constitutional amendment to protect abortion and and how they would come forward to to protect reproductive rights. Um, and then we see people like uh, Sutherland here in the 30th, um, you know, is a proud, open Trump conspiracy theorist uh, believer and, you know, anti-abortion who's seemingly going to get uh, reelected. And his challenger, who's also a Republican, uh, Sam Lowe, who's a county council member out here, um, didn't really take a firm stance on abortion. So, you know, I think those districts that have always voted for people just maybe just straight down party lines um, may not have cared about the abortion argument as much as as those did who, you know, heard the worries of those in other states where where their rights are at risk. Hmm. Okay, well, that's a summary of where we stand. You know, this this program that we're doing right now gets repeated on Saturday, and we'll know more by then. So I always want to point out, as we're talking right now, Friday in the noon hour, um, we, we've we've discussed the, the primary update, and then there's going to be another— uh, batch of counted ballots here in the next few hours on Friday afternoon. So let's leave it there from now. Uh, for now on Week in Review, we're going to come right back and continue the show with Isabella Breda, uh, hopefully uh, being more connected to us than ever uh, from the Everett Herald. <laughs> and we've got Publicola's Erica Burnett and Seattle Times, Elise Takahama. And we're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. And we'll get right back to it after a quick break.
You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm your host, Bill Radke. This week, the Biden administration declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency. More than 6,000 Americans are known to have been infected. In Washington state, it's about 200, almost all in King County. The number of confirmed cases in King County has been doubling every week. That's partly because we're testing more. Dr. Matthew Golden helps lead King County's response to the outbreak. This is a significant epidemic, and monkeypox is a serious infection, but it isn't COVID and it isn't HIV. I don't think we think it's going to have the scale of a COVID epidemic. It is not easily transmitted through airborne transmission. And by the way, the state health department is calling the virus MPV. Health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Times, you've been covering this virus. What else should we know? Yeah, so we just heard an update from the State Department of Health yesterday, and they basically confirmed again, as we've known, that vaccine-wise, we're not currently prepared locally. And that is really coming more from the federal side, where there's just a really huge delay in getting vaccine out to states and local health jurisdictions right now. Um, You know, for example, King County, I think, has gotten about 1,400 doses. Um, The state has distributed about 6,800 doses and say that they have 17,000 more on the way, but that they're really not going to come into the state for the next, you know, I will, they'll be coming into the state over the next month, month and a half. But right now, as you said, you know, monkeypox cases are doubling nearly every week in the state. And it's definitely concerned for especially those who are at high risk and are hoping for a vaccine, but just can't get eligible quite yet because supply is so low. Why is so that definitely Elise? something to be worried about? Yeah. Why, what's the problem with the vaccines? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think, like I said, it's just a delay issue. Um, you know, we saw that New York Times report that the the country might have been unprepared and failed early on to ask that some of these bulk stocks of the vaccine um, that it already had could be then double bottled for distribution, um, which, you know, might have helped speed the process along a little bit more, um, which, you know, in these early stages is really, really key, as we've seen with COVID. Um, and because we're starting from a very different place than we were with COVID, I mean, we actually have have approved vaccines, that's a really big difference. Um, And so getting them out to communities like in King County and just throughout the state is going to be really important. And now let's talk about the messaging around this. First of all, um, I want to hear from Erica, but Elise, who is being asked to get themselves vaccinated if they can get a vaccine? Yeah, so in a lot of other states where um, the outbreak is worse, and even in we've seen in Vancouver and BC, um, the people who are eligible for the vaccine are members of the LGBTQ community, particularly gay, bisexual men, um, because you know, for the specific reason that this current global outbreak is primarily affecting that group disproportionately. So public health officials are trying to get them or get that community more vaccine and treatment more immediately. Um, But, you know, it's it's that is not to say, I mean, this disease can spread to anyone who's exposed. It's, of course, not confined to a certain community, um, which is why it's important to continue talking about it so that people are are just aware of that this is happening and that they should be on the lookout of this. Right. Uh, Erica, anybody can get this uh, MPV monkeypox virus, but everybody is not getting it right now. It is these this outbreak is very much concentrated overwhelmingly among uh, men having sex with men and, and their their uh, social network. So uh, what's your take on how we talk about this v- outbreak? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there is uh, a fear of stigmatizing men who have sex with men um, that is affecting how, uh, you know, effectively uh, information gets communicated. Um, and I think it's it's kind of a, it's its own type of stigmatization to say, you know, to sort of couch uh, language around a monkeypox in uh, you know, it's generally vaguely LGBTQ plus people, uh, or, you know, anyone can get it, which is all absolutely true. But, you know, but it obfuscates the fact that the people who are currently most at risk are men who have sex with men or, you know, um, men who have sex with, uh, I hope I can say this on the air, but people with penises, because it's also trans people. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, and I think this is happening um, everywhere. I mean, I looked at King County's um, website uh, about monkeypox and, you know, and it sort of was, was all, all very much um, couched in these vague phrases. Uh, I think very far down the page, it said something about, you know, anyone who has high risk contact and it says avoid sex and gatherings, um, which, you know, again, like just obfuscates uh, the information that actually needs to get out there, um, you know, which is which is who is who is currently most at risk. And it is overwhelmingly men who have sex with men. And I think there is a way to do that without stigmatizing uh, the uh, monkeypox as a whole, you know, in the way that HIV was stigmatized um, in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I, I do want to hear from Isabella. Um, I'm I'm also want to stick with uh, health reporter Elise Takahama for any reaction to that uh, question around how we talk about this virus, Elise. Yeah, I mean, I, everything that Erica said, I think it, I, is completely true. I mean, there is, of course, we want the general public to be informed about this, because if they're not, then they might not think that it's a serious issue, and it is. But at the same time, you know, public health officers and folks have to be able to communicate to the right community that they are at higher risk. And that's just the fact of the matter. Um, and so I think that there's, they, they are doing some of that and they, they are working with, um, for example, the sexual health clinic in King County and some other, um, some other LGBTQ organizations to be able to hone in their message a little bit more specifically. But, you know, we've still heard from a lot of people that they just don't know what's going on and some more specific guidance would be really appreciated. Isabella Breda, any reaction or questions regarding what you've heard? Well, I mean, here in Snohomish County, there hasn't been um, a ton of messaging. And I think that's part of the difference. There has been, um, you know, some inclusion of just emphasizing that those at the highest risk or at higher risk are men who have sex with men. Um, but there hasn't necessarily been much more than just the, the press release here or there saying that one more person got it. I think we're only at two or three in our county thus far. Um, I mean, my questions would be, you know, with COVID, um, which we knew a lot less about, obviously, I think there was more of a frenzy to make tests available um, and to get that messaging out. And, and here, I believe we've known a lot more about monkeypox for years. So, I mean, is there going to be any efforts to, to heighten the accessibility of, of tests or vaccines so that there doesn't have to be that stigma around, you know, having to prove how many sexual partners you've had in order to, to get access to a vaccine? Yeah, I definitely hope that we're going to get some more info. I mean, it's it's been really tough to get some sort of more specific timelines of when we're going to get more vaccine. Um, 
some state health folks have said, you know, like I said earlier, within the next four to six weeks, but, you know, we're, we're at this point, we're just kind of waiting and we're at the mercy of the federal government. So it could, it could be longer than then too. And we're going to be able to, I mean, we're going to have to figure out how to organize and get people who are most at risk, the, the vaccines fastest. I and do. I think just, mm-hmm, just to go back real quick to messaging mm-hmm. um, on this, I mean, I think that the the other risk um, with not being specific is that you see stuff like, you know, the I mean, there was a story about um, a woman who, you know, whose video who, who somebody videotaped her on the subway in New York and uh, said she yeah. had monkeypox. And in fact, she had different condition. But like, I mean, there's tons of memes right now and jokes about, you know, how you can get it on the, by sitting, you know, with uh, your legs touching a subway seat. And I mean, that, that I guess, you know, is hypothetically, you know, it can be transmitted by surfaces, but it isn't being transmitted that way. And so there's like, there's just more risk of misinformation when there isn't good information out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I don't remember if I've said that this is um, monkeypox is rarely fatal, even if it doesn't get treated, is my understanding. At least tell me if I'm saying anything wrong yeah. along these lines. It doesn't lead to chronic you know, a chronic infectious disease like like HIV. Anything else we should tell people? That's what we've heard so far. Yeah. Um, there have been fewer deaths, but there there have been deaths from monkeypox, and there mm. have been serious hospitalizations. Um, okay. But that's that's true for the most part. People recover within two to four to six weeks and are generally okay after that. But um, but you know, many require treatment. Definitely. Yeah, can it starts with feeling like the flu, and then and then. This rash, little red bumps, and and then those scab and fall off. It it's most common through skin to skin contact. Could be uh, prolonged face to face contact, and even could be contact with infected clothes or sheets. I'm just going by what I'm reading. Uh, anything to add mm-hmm. before we That's work? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's that's where we stand. Pub- just by the way, a public health emergency means. What? The Biden administration declared a public health emergency, which probably means more money? Yeah, well, so hopefully that is what that means, more funding, more resources toward this in public health departments. Um, so it's, it's you know, definitely concerning that it's now this public health emergency, but on the bright side, it should free up some more funding for um, to get into states. So hopefully we'll be able to see that soon, too. Okay. On the Since we're talking uh, health issues, on the COVID front that we mentioned, the FDA has decided not to give the second COVID booster shot to people under age 50. This week, NPR health correspondent Rob Stein told us this decision sparked uh, an intense debate inside the Biden administration. Some health officials wanted to open up the boosters now to protect people against this highly contagious variant going around. One of those is Dr. Robert Walker at UC San Francisco. And the idea that I should wait and remain vulnerable when the case rate is very, very high, people have thrown caution to the wind, there are very few masks to be seen anymore, it just means we're exposing, you know, tens of millions of people to several months of additional vulnerability. But other health officials say, you know, younger, otherwise healthy people are still pretty well protected against getting very sick from the two or three doses they've already gotten. And getting another shot now might interfere with getting maybe stronger protection from the new boosters that are supposed to come in the fall. This is Dr. Carlos Del Rio at Emory University. So if you get a, a vaccine right now, 
The concern is that you will not respond as well when you get another vaccine so close to this one. You have to have some time between doses of vaccines. So getting two vaccines too close to each other may actually cancel the impact of the second vaccine. In other words, there's more risk than benefit of getting another booster right now. Go back to our health reporter, Elise. What's your reaction to this? Anything we ought to know about COVID now? That's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm interested in hearing uh, the, this Emory doctor's response because it's it's not really what we've heard from a lot of our Seattle doctors and health officials. Um, you know, of course, there is that concern and it's really tricky and complicated about booster timing right now because there still is a lot of unknown about this, you know, kind of, quote, new and improved booster that's apparently going to come out in the fall, um, which, you know, a lot of public health folks are really excited about, of course, you know, it'll be great to have an Omicron specific booster. But, you know, I mean, we that booster has not been approved, it has not been clinically reviewed quite yet. And that process can take months sometimes. Um, And meanwhile, who knows if there is going to be another fall winter surge, similar to Omicron last year. And um, so doctors around this area are definitely urging people to get boosted right now, if you haven't been, um, just in case there is that delay from the federal side, and people, you know, think that they are going to be able to get their booster in October. And, you know, let's say it doesn't end up rolling out till November, December, um, and then you're putting yourself at risk for potentially other surges and the flu is going to come along soon too. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what we're hearing right now about boosters, but um, it is definitely exciting that we're going to get kind of a a newer one coming out hopefully soon. Anybody else want to volunteer their personal medical information <laughs> regarding how you, what you're what you're thinking about your boosters? I I uh, I was holding off. I'm above fifty, and I was holding off on a second booster until my daughter got COVID, and I went out that day and got that booster and didn't get sick. Who knows? Anyway, any uh, Isabella, any uh, any thoughts? I wouldn't say any thoughts specifically about boosters, but if I may, I mean, the thing that it's bringing to mind for me is that just like we saw last summer, there was this uh, narrative of COVID is over. Um, We're paying attention less. We have access to vaccines. We'll have boosters soon and things will be fine and dandy. Um, And that just wasn't the case. And we saw cities rolling back some of their um, COVID friendly or however you might call it policies that helped know, keep people safer in public um, in addition or coupled with masking, uh, things like outdoor dining uh, opportunities for places that didn't actually have outdoor seating, like the streeteries and outdoor um, opportunities for shopping. Um, Those things all got rolled back. And, you know, most recently, Seattle no longer has hazard pay for grocery store workers. And and again, they're still high risk workers. They're out there every day um, where COVID cases are are still out there and they're still not great for people who are fully vaccinated, no matter how many boosters you do have. Um, And it just it begs the question of, you know, how are we dealing with COVID as it becomes endemic? Yes, Erica, you were telling me that you don't think this grocery worker hazard pay thing is just a simple workers' rights versus anti-workers' rights issue. Yeah, it's certainly not. I mean, it, it is. Uh, it is a situation. I mean, it's complicated, but um, the city, the city did ultimately make its decision. I mean, they've been city council um, has been trying to roll back this uh, temporary hazard pay four dollars for grocery workers for for quite some time since the Durkin administration. And, you know, the the reasoning is that it was originally instituted because grocery workers were essential workers. People have to go to the grocery store to get food and they did so during the lockdown. 
um, you know, we're almost two years past the lockdown. Um, and, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we're in sort of COVID is over uh, mindset territory. But I mean, the fact is, a lot of people, uh, most people um, who are frontline workers have gone back to work. And these are specific protections for one class of workers that interacts with the public. Um, so do baristas, so do retail workers, so do people who work at Walgreens, um, you know, I mean, yep. there's waiters, Waiters, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just rattle off any number yeah. of groups. And so this was never intended to be sort of a permanent um, government uh, supported pay boost for one category. Um, and in fact, uh, the grocery workers union was the uh, group that was most recently arguing to eliminate this, uh, this boost specifically because they're their latest union contract provides a $4 an hour pay boost that could only go into effect after this, uh, this uh, particular legislation, you know, uh, ended. Mm. So that pay boost is going to start going into effect at the end of August. Um, it's not immediate. So it's, you know, like $2 or so up front, and then it gets instituted over a period of time. So it will be a temporary, uh, pay, uh, a loss of pay for workers who've had that $4, but, you know, I mean, this was never intended to go on indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of our, where are we in the pandemic? Uh, are we going forward or going, going backward? Did you see Emerald City Comic Con is requiring masks again, which they did not do last year? And I don't mean Hawkman masks. I mean COVID <laughs> masks. Interesting. I did not see that about Comic-Con, but yep. that makes sense. It draws so many people. And it's, I mean, at this point, I mean, I think that it's, I, it's, People shouldn't be surprised to hear about new outbreaks and all their friends getting sick. I definitely know that a lot of my friends and family have gotten sick recently and have fortunately had really mild cases, but it's just so common now. Like People should not be surprised that they're getting sick if they're going to be unmasked and out in the public and in crowded spaces. It's I mean, I got sick with, and I mask everywhere, you yeah. know, and exactly, I don't go yeah. in crowded spaces, period. Exactly. I was in Pike Place Market um, to meet a friend um, the last week and I uh, was walking around, you know, fully masked and like almost no one was masked and that place was mobbed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine Pike Place right now. I think that it's also because it's, you know, it's, it's semi-outdoors. It's, it's outdoors, I guess. And so people are more comfortable not masking there too. But mm-hmm. so, once you're inside, it's just, it can get kind of, it can get kind of cramped in some spaces. Comic-Con says if you are wearing your, your Hawkman mask or whatever on the outside, you have to be ready to take it off to show that you have a COVID mask Underneath, which, of course, temporarily causes you to lose your powers, and that makes you vulnerable to whoever Hawkman's nemesis nemesis is. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Um, Okay, one more. um, Since we're talking health issues, I just want to check in on our weather because, you know, we had this big stretch in the 90s last week. The heat dome the year before. It looks like a few days in the 80s are coming, Erica. Does that sound hot enough to trigger public health measures? I mean, it's it's so I hate to say arbitrary, uh, but it 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 is kind of situational um, mm-hmm. for when they decide to um, to implement you know things like cooling centers. I mean, the official guidance is uh, is over ninety five, and the official guidance for warming centers is uh, twenty five or under. Multiple days, twenty five or under, mm-hmm. or an inch of snow on the ground. So um, obviously, they're not following the strict guidance, um, but. You know, uh, the uh, they institute they opened up cooling centers uh, during the last uh, five day heat wave, um, 
And, you know, I mean, it can get pretty hot inside buildings when it's 85 out. Um, I know I uh, take to my uh, my yard office for those days mm-hmm. um, and I really look forward to it. But um, but people who are, um, you know, intense and people who are in, um, you know, even apartments that don't have air conditioning, west facing windows, it can get, you know, up in the 90s indoors. Yeah. Isabella, you were saying that rural cities and towns are are not prepared for high heat. Yeah, and I think, you know, specifically along Mountain Loop Highway and out there, they're not only taking care of their residents who, you know, many of don't have air conditioning, uh, and they also are, are slim on p- any public facilities for people to go into. There's one library in Darrington, um, but they're also taking care of tourists. So it's, you know, they're putting an emphasis on water safety because that's one of the few ways to cool down out there and a lot of those places along uh, the different rivers. And, you know, talking to the Darrington mayor the the week before it was slated to hit uh, triple digits, you know, he seemed a little like, oh my gosh, thank you, reporter, for reminding me that I need to talk to the fire department about what we're doing. (laughs) Um, It's hard to when you're taking care of when you're taking care of that many people. Yeah. Okay. Anything to, before we take a break, anything to add about um, heat preparedness? I guess, at least that probably comes into your, the weather has has become a a health reporter beat as well. I I guess it it, it occasionally has been, but it just increases. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, it it started to, I mean, it's always been a health issue, I think, in, in terms of just how this extreme heat is affecting you know, it's affecting everyone, um, especially in Seattle, where so few of us have air conditioners. Um, but, you know, we're also starting to talk about wildfire season. It's it's definitely starting to ramp up already. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a little bit later in the year than last year and previous years, um, that's something that we're going to be keeping an eye on, too. So, yeah, for, for people in this region, I mean, I think that's definitely something to be a little bit worried about. Um, last year, we got some pretty bad smoke from BC, as well as, you know, we saw really those like apocalyptic photos in Portland and San Francisco. Um, so wildfire season is is definitely on its way. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing a possibility of light smoke uh, this weekend in our little uh, 80s bump. By the way, I'm being told that the uh, uh, Hawkman's nemesis is the shadow thief. In case you were you were interested, perfect. Now we, now we know. <laughs> Won't have to worry about that for the rest you of the day. Can, <laughs> yes, you could finally put that aside. Okay, let's take a short break, and uh, when we're going to come back. It turns out maybe reassigning police officers is even more difficult than we knew. We're going to discuss that and what is making us smile, maybe what's going to make you smile this week with Elise Takahama from the Seattle Times, Publicola's Erica Barnett, Everett Herald's Isabella Breda. We'll be right back. You're listening to Week in Review. You could be watching Week in Review because we're streaming it on Facebook and YouTube. I'm your host, Bill Radke. University of Washington has been ordered to reinstate police patrols of its dorm rooms. The UW had tried to move away from armed officers and toward unarmed campus responders. Publicola's Erica Barnett, what happened here? Yeah, the, um, you know, like a lot of police departments, um, the University of Washington's police department um, came under fire in 2020 um, and uh, during the protests and um, the, uh, the, 
the Black Student Union um, and other uh, student groups uh, demanded that uh, essentially UW uh, divest from police. Um, and one action that they took, um, in addition to sort of uh, taking away some positions through attrition that was you know, similar to what the city of Seattle did, um, was they uh, they decided to institute um, unarmed uh, patrols at dorms. Um, police had been patrolling dorms uh, before that for many years. And uh, so they, they hired these community responders, um, which are represented by a different union. Um, the union challenged this. And uh, last week, um, or rather uh, late last month, um, a state panel decided that they had, uh, the UW had acted improperly and said that uh, this was a subject of bargaining and um, in an unfair labor practice. So the police were reinstituted at, uh, at, at dorms. Yeah, I understand. Uh, Erica, sorry to interrupt. I understand that bargaining working conditions, but I didn't know that uh, they had to uh, do certain work with police, whether the UW wanted to or not. If I'm putting that right, what I'm I'm curious what you think this says about local cities that want to or say they want to move away from armed response. Yeah, I mean, essentially what it says is because this was a job done by police um, in the past, taking it away from police is not going to be as simple as, you know, management action. So the management of the university can't just say, we are removing this duty from you. Um, and they were also ordered to get back pay for any um, hours they lost. Um, the Again, the police uh, didn't actually cut any officers, so nobody's jobs were lost. But um, but the implication of this is that, you know, for other police departments, including um, SPD, which is going through a big contract negotiation now, um, that taking police off of certain assignments where they have, uh, where they currently, um, you know, and, and traditionally ha- have had, um, is going to be potentially harder. I mean, this, you know, this sets a kind of precedent. It's a different type of police force, but um, it's not a city police force. But, you know, it is uh, it is a slap down from the uh, the state uh, employee relations commission. Yeah, Isabella, you were saying that um, it was another sign that maybe the the seriousness of about police reform after George Floyd's murder maybe wasn't as serious or maybe just as practical as we thought? Right. And I'm not incredibly familiar with, you know, what the alternatives could look like down the road, but I do know, you know, other police and other first responders in Snohomish County, if they're looking to replace an armed officer with someone, will contract outside to bring that individual in and keep, you know, whatever officer patrolling. So it's in effect not reducing the amount of armed officers that are out there, but they're providing that uh, quote-unquote community resource that people had been asking for. Um, but but to me, just on its face, this is kind of emblematic of, you know, those reforms that were made right after George Floyd's killing and, you know, how closely they can actually um, up, you know, uphold those for years or whether or not they're something that is just a moment or a blip in time. And uh, Elise, anything to add or or any questions to ask about uh, policing before we turn to what's uh, actually making us smile this week? Make a left turn that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not I haven't been covering this issue, but it is really interesting. And Erica, actually, I was wondering, I mean, what has university response, I guess, student response or teacher response been to that, if any? 
You know, I haven't followed up on that. Um, so, uh, so I, I can't answer th- that question, but, um, but, you know, I, this, this is something that, that came from the students and mm-hmm. I, yeah, I would imagine right. that students who push for this would be very disappointed to see, I mean, you know, cause it affects, it affects their everyday lives. Um, exactly. and the issue was, you know, seeing armed officers patrolling dorms, um, and, uh, and saying, you know, we, we don't accept that. Um, I, you know, didn't go to school at a time when we had uh, cops patrolling dorms. And I can imagine finding that, you know, very disturbing. Um, You know, it's, I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if, if they do end up bargaining this, because it's not like, it's not the end of the story, right? When they say this has to be bargained. I mean, sometimes things do get bargained away and sometimes uh, police unions do agree to changes. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I mean, in Seattle, uh, I can see the police saying like, look, we want to be present on all, you know, responses to 911 calls, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. So it, it, you know, it's, it's got, to, it's got, to, it's not the end of the story for sure. It is time. Yeah, we've got, right? I, I'm sorry to interrupt. We do, we've got three minutes left to the end of the show. And I always am so happy, much as I enjoy the entire show. I'm also glad that we fit in something that's making us feel hopeful or smiley. And so um, time to do that. I'm going to leave you with the fact that I started my career here at KOW in 1985. And I would walk over next door to the college music station KCMU, which is now KEXP. And together they're turning 50 years old. So KEXP put some classic old audio up on SoundCloud. And this is a little sound of KCMU in its first year of broadcast, 1972. And temperature tonight is going to be more of the same. In the low 20s, and there's also a 20% chance of snow flowers with flurries tomorrow, but don't lose any sleep or hold your breath over that. The high tomorrow will be in the middle 30s. The wind will be for the rest of this evening from 15 to 25 miles per hour from the north. Did you know, Brent, that you said snow flowers, not snow flurries? What did I? What you was said, that? You said snow flowers, man. I'm no, no, that was flurries. No, that's what you should have said, but you didn't, man. You no, said it says snow- here F L U R R I E S. That's flurries. I couldn't have said flowers. No, I'm sorry, Brent, but it just didn't come out that way. Way to stick to your guns, Brent, and deny the plain <laughs> truth when it comes to snow flowers. You were ahead of your time. Brent would, of course, go on to one day name his son Alex Jones. Um, KE- <laughs> just kidding. KEXP will hold a free 50th anniversary concert Saturday at Seattle Center. Uh, Elise, anything making you smile this week? This week, actually, one thing that was really fun um, was Emerald Down had its annual Corgi races, if anyone was following that. Uh-huh. Um, and two of my coworkers, Paige and Sean, actually enter their Corgi Zoe every year. So it's very adorable and very chaotic, and you all should check it out. I think there is some Twitter footage out there of, of the races this year. So. I take it your your colleagues' corgis didn't win, but at least they finished, I hope? The, the, yeah, the, the, she, okay. she struggles a little bit with finishing sometimes. Oh. She gets a little confused. I think this time she uh, – well, last year she actually had a really good start out and was like at least a couple, a couple steps ahead of the competition before like abruptly veering to the side. <laughs> so this year I think it was kind of a similar situation. But okay. uh, I think it looked like fun. <laughs> well, good try, Corgis. Um, anything else, uh, Erica or Isabella, anything to leave us with in our last few seconds here? 
Yeah, I um, I actually uh, was very happy about the hot weather this week, which uh, this past week, which um, a writer at Grist, uh, Eve Andrews, also wrote about um, Grist.org, and um, she uh, focused on mosquitoes. Um, she lived in Seattle um, and was sort of dismayed by the lack of mugginess and moved back to Pennsylvania um, <laughs> and discovered there are mosquitoes everywhere. So she wrote this great piece for Grist about mosquitoes and mugginess and uh, sort of oh, what yeah. we think of as, as feeling like home. Isabella, do you love mosquitoes too? Uh, no, but speaking of feeling like home, I was very happy to wake up and see rain yesterday morning after it had been what felt like a million degrees last week. Well, the mosquitoes are happy about that rain too, so we've all come together. <laughs> um, okay, that's our show for today, KOW's Week in Review. Thanks for the smiles, and mostly thanks for the information, Isabella Breda, Everett Herald. Uh, also, Publicola editor and co-host of the Seattle Nice podcast, Erica Barnett, and Seattle Times health reporter, Elise Takahama. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for doing the show this week. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. The show is produced by Sarah Leibovitz with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll see you next week.